Good morning again, 59th Street family. We welcome you here for this Pentecost Sunday as we continue in our sermon series, Voices from the Wilderness, where we explore how various Old Testament prophets basically encourage us and call us from the wilderness to allow us to continue to grow in our holiness. Now, in last week's sermon, we discussed how we can continue to grow in holiness as we practice wisdom and turn ourselves back to God. But today, I want to take a look at holiness from another aspect or a different perspective, and that it is not something that we develop, but it's also something that is given to us as well. That while we are dead in our sins, God comes to give us life and to restore us back to holiness. And to kind of illustrate this point, um, I want to talk briefly about one of my favorite cartoons that I've ever watched in my entire life. Um, and this cartoon is called Kotoro Lives Alone. It's this um, Japanese, <laughs> Japanese cartoon for the youth state. They know I talk about this cartoon endlessly because um, it, is, it is really that good. And the premise of this show is that one day, uh, a four-year-old boy, his name is Kotoro, he moves into this kind of rundown apartment building by himself. Um, he moves in and his neighbors are like, oh, interesting, he has no parents, no grandparents, no aunts, no uncles, no brothers, no sisters, no cousins, simply just him. A four-year-old boy living by himself, hence the title of the show, Kotoro Lives Alone. And as the show starts, we don't know exactly why he lives alone, but for a four-year-old boy to live by himself, cook for himself, do his own household chores, obviously something probably tragic happened either to Kotoro's parents or to him himself. But the reason why I love this cartoon so much is not just because of how endearing Kotoro is, but how his neighbors respond to the fact that a four-year-old boy is living by himself. They see the brokenness inside Kotoro and they decide to make a change. So throughout the show, we, we begin to see how a group of misfit neighbors come to care for Kotoro as if he were their own children. Um, we see a lazy manga artist who has zero responsibilities. He's barely scraping by. He can't even wake up on time. He takes on the duty and the responsibility to look after Kotoro and bring him to and back from school. Uh, we see a woman who faced domestic abuse and is forced to work as a hostess in a local nightclub, and she would just spend all of her remaining energy and time to care for him, to bring him to the park, uh, to play with him, um, and to cook with him. Uh, we also see a local gang member who is not allowed to see his own son. Um, he begins to open his heart up and treat Kotoro as if Kotoro was his own son. And as the story progresses and plays out, these neighbors, they begin to see the depth of tragedy that Kotoro had to face. But in the place of each tragedy, the neighbors take it upon themselves to bring life, to bring wholeness back into Kotoro's life. He no longer needs to watch TV alone. He no longer needs to eat dinner alone. Kotoro no longer needs to live alone because he found a new family. Uh, a larger family that truly and genuinely cares for Kotoro unconditionally. And so through these neighbors, Kotoro's life not only reverses, but Kotoro actually receives a new chance of having the opportunity to have a real and healthy childhood 
where he is loved and taken care of. And if you guys are interested in watching it, it's on Netflix. Um, so please give it a give it a chance. I know it's a little bizarre, but so as we're as we're about to move forward in our in our sermon today, we're going to read a passage which comes from Ezekiel that also speaks about this theme of reversal, that from death comes life, that from tragedy comes a new opportunity for a new start in life. So for all those who are gathered here today, um, I invite us to turn to Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, verses 1 to 14, where we read of this radical and unconditional love of God. So let's turn to Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the spirits of the Lord, and he set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were dry. And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? And I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I'll put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. What a powerful, powerful message. Now, as, as we take a closer look at the prophetic vision given to Ezekiel in the, in the scripture that we just read, we see that much like Kotoro, uh, the people of Israel, they find themselves in an obviously hopeless and desperate situation. The valley, you know, filled with dry bones is such a vivid description of the absolute tragedy that came to the Israelite people. Um, and if we were to take a look at history at this point in time, the, the people basically, they failed to listen. They failed to listen to the warnings given to them by the prophet Jeremiah, which we read last week. And as a result of this, the nation of Judah was totally conquered, right? Soldiers came and slaughtered families and whoever was left alive, they were bound in chains and they were sent off 
to Babylon as slaves and as exiles. And because of this, we see that the state of the Israelites it was, it was quite desperate. Uh, the valley filled with dry bones not just represented the people of Judah who literally died, but it also represents the spiritual state of the Israelites as well. They felt lifeless, void of hope, and spiritually barren. They felt completely disconnected, right? The verse says that they felt that they were cut off, disconnected from the life-giving power of their God, Yahweh. And the unfortunate reality is that this state of utter hopelessness might be something that many of us can relate to some way or another. In certain seasons of life, we may feel as if we were not just walking through this valley of dry bones, but we might feel that we are the dry bones themselves. We feel cut off, isolated, and lifeless. But it is at this point, the point of greatest despair and need, that the question arises from God. He asks, can these bones live? And to this question, Ezekiel answers, Sovereign Lord, um, you alone know. See, from a human standpoint, right, the answer is obviously no, no, these dry bones cannot come back to life. But what Ezekiel understands is that if there were even a glimmer of possibility that these bones could live again, then this possibility can only come from God and God alone. And how Ezekiel replies is very instructive because he reminds us of the power of surrendering to God's power and sovereignty. Last week, we talked about how we, were to, we are to surrender into the hands of our potter, and today we come to a very similar conclusion, that in these moments, when we are facing insurmountable obstacles, when we feel as spiritually dry as these dead bones in the valley, our hope does not lie in our own strength, in our own understanding. We can't restore ourselves back to life. Instead, our hope lies in the sovereign Lord who alone knows and determines the outcomes of our circumstances. And to come to this point of surrender requires us to first take a serious, very, very serious assessment and acknowledgement of our current spiritual state. It requires us to first admit to our weakness and to our spiritual dryness. It requires us to adopt a posture of humbleness and humility where we acknowledge that we indeed are unable to save ourselves through our own strength. For those of you who've lived long enough, you, you realize this truth quite adequately. We can't save ourselves. However, as we admit this about our spiritual lives, this actually opens the door for us to invite God's love and God's power to take over. It opens the door for us to say, Lord, this is it. This, this is my life. And if there is a hope for me to be restored, it can only come from you. And it's only through this act of surrender that allows us to begin to experience not just healing, but total and complete renewal and restoration. So let's actually take a look at that at our next sermon point, that God breathes life. And as we journey further into the valley, we begin to explore how God starts the work of restoration, right? In verse 4 to 6, we read God's promise to the dry bones where God says, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you 
and you will come to life. You, then you will know that I am the Lord. One of the reasons I, I just love this passage so much is that it's such a clear demonstration of God's unconditional grace. See, the dry bones, they are representative of the people of Israel. They are representative of the people who had forsaken God. These are the people who have dismissed his commands. These are the people who persecuted the prophets that God sent to them. And because of their refusal to listen to God, they find themselves in the midst of not just spiritual death, but physical death as they were conquered by the Babylonians. And so if we examine the truth, if we examine the history, we unfortunately see that the Israelites reaped what they sowed. They were put into a situation where they have to answer for their own actions and suffer the consequences of their decisions. And so from a pure standpoint of justice, Israel's destruction was not just just, but it was also fair. And what always speaks to me about this passage is this. Despite the fact that the Israelites are rightly judged for their sins, despite the fact that dry bones cannot even begin to call out to God, despite the fact that they are now in exile and they still refuse to acknowledge God, God still comes into their midst, into their death, and he pours out his grace and his promises of restoration. And the thing is, God, he does not do this because the Israelites deserve it. And the thing is, God does not do this because God pities them either. Rather, since our God is the God of life, God's response to death is always to bring restoration and renewal. And I believe this is such a powerful reminder for us because often we find ourselves in a situation where we might be the dry bones in the valley. Sometimes it is unfortunately from our own doing, if we are honest with ourselves, but sometimes it's also the unfortunate reality of living in a sinful world where we might get hurt even if we didn't do anything wrong. Yet in the midst of our own spiritual death and dryness, our passage reminds us that God has already, already stepped into our lives. Before you called upon God, he has already stepped into your lives. For those of us who are gathered here today, this is the message of the gospel. That while we were dead, that while we did not know God or begin to even desire God, God already began the process of our spiritual resurrection. Not because we deserve it, not because we earned it, but because that is who our God is. Our God is the God of life. God of restoration and the God of unfathomable grace. And yet, when it comes to God's restoration of our spiritually dead souls, you see, the thing is, God doesn't, he just doesn't restore us to who we once were back then, right? If you were to imagine a doctor performing CPR, right, the person's life is restored, but fundamentally, nothing changes for that person aside from the fact that they had a pretty traumatic experience. They're still the same person with the same flaws and the same spiritual states, but when God breathes new life into us, not only are we restored, but we are brought into a totally new and a totally changed life. But what does this grace-filled life look like? And how do we experience the fullness of this new spirit-breathed life that God bestows upon us? And this, these questions, they actually bring us to our final point today about living in God's grace. And for us as Christians, even for non-Christians, 
Um, it is this pivotal concept of living in God's grace that brings genuine transformation and change within us. By living in God's grace, we are talking about a life where we not only comprehend our salvation and restoration as God's generous gift, but it's also a life where we understand that God's grace and presence is always active in our lives, in the midst of our victories, but also in the midst of our sufferings. It forces us to realize that God's work of restoration permeates every single aspect of this new life. And like a dry sponge, we begin to soak up every drop of water, every drop of God's grace until we are completely full, until we are soaking wet, until God's grace literally seeps out from our lives and spreads to literally everything around us. And when we begin to fundamentally realize this about our lives, about how we are these sponges that simply soak up God's grace and love, it changes us in two ways. First, it fundamentally alters how we understand ourselves. It changes how we see who we are. We acknowledge that even in this life, here on earth, before we're talking about heaven, while we're still here on earth, we are no longer dry bones in a desolate valley. We are now filled with God's spirit and life. This is the whole message of Pentecost Sunday, actually. And the thing is, for many Christians, the thing is we don't experience this immediately. But the reality is that God is deliberately transforming you part by part. Just as we read earlier that these dry bones were restored part by part, bone by bone, tendon by tendon, flesh by flesh, the process of spiritual renewal within us is also occurring gradually, but assuredly. And as this happens, we begin to see ourselves no longer as who we once were, but we begin to see and understand ourselves as new creations in Christ. And for those of you who are Christians, you see this now as you reflect on who you once were, maybe 10, 15 years ago, compared to who you are now, you see very clearly that God is continually sanctifying you and transforming you. However, not only does this transformation change how we see ourselves, but also changes how we interact with the world around us. See, as we experience a grace-filled life, we cannot help but to extend that grace to everything around us. Like a lamp in a dark room, it becomes second nature to bring light where there is darkness, life where there is death, and hope in the midst of suffering. Our grace-filled lives cannot help but to leave an impact on the world around us. Yesterday, I was um, at... Thelma Lister's service, and I could not help but to see this truth play out before my eyes. As each of her children and grandchildren came up to give a short message of remembrance, uh, they were not just filled with fond memories, they were filled with the legacy that Thelma left behind. For a few of the grandchildren, they carried on her legacy of music. For some of the other grandchildren, they carried on her legacy of generosity and kindness. But every single grandchild carried on the legacy of loving the Lord as they witnessed firsthand what a grace-filled life Thelma had and the radiant joy such grace gave to those around her. And so brothers and sisters, as we're gathered here today on this Pentecost Sunday where the Holy Spirit filled the lives of Christians 2,000 years ago and brought about radical change and renewal, I encourage you to ask yourselves, 
whether you will allow the Spirit to work that restoration into your life today. For some of us gathered here today, we might not have yet to fully accept or allow the Spirit to do its work. And if you might identify as one of those people, I encourage you to ask yourself, am I currently in this place of dryness and death? Am I currently in this place of emptiness and hopelessness? And if you are, I invite you to today, accept this free gift of God, of true restoration, the salvation of both your bodies and your souls. But for those of us who are Christians today, I also want to offer you a word of encouragement as well. That despite the tragedies of life, despite our own faults, there is still a God who was, is, and will continue to work out the good work that he has already started in your lives. You have already tasted the fruits of joy, peace, and love, and I encourage you to continue to nurture these fruits of the Spirit to allow your bodies, your souls, and your mind to be a light for all the world to see. So as we're about to come into a period of prayer, um, let us start off with thanksgiving for who God is, but let us also continue to pray for the Spirit's work to continually transform our lives into holiness. So why don't we come together for a quick time of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you today to thank you. Before we could call out to you, and while we were still dead in our sins, you came to us. You have wandered back and forth through the valley of dry bones, and you have made a commitment to bring life to the lifeless, to bring hope to the hopeless, and to allow those who hate and despise you the chance to now experience your radical love. Father, we confess, we admit, none of us here deserve your grace, and yet you freely pour it out for us, because you do not desire for us to suffer, but you desire for us to spend eternity with you. And so, Father, as we come before you, we pray that you will continue to do the good work of transformation in our lives. Father, allow every aspect of your spirit to break through strongholds in our lives. Father, we confess, we do not want to be who we once were. So allow us, Lord, to be remade into your image, into your likeness. Allow us to be the representation, the perfect representation of you. Father, we love you and we praise you. We commit our lives into your hands. In your most precious son's name, we pray. Amen. <laughs>